0: So the issue here, if COVID-19 shots are going to become routinely recommended uh, even once the pandemic ends, then any alleged injuries from those shots would need to be handled by a 36-year-old program that hasn't been updated since it was originally started. And that means even more of a workload on top of an already burdened
1: staff. Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Annie Reese. And this. Hey, I am recording. Is Lauren Gardner.
0: And I cover FDA
1: for Politico. Talking about the vaccine injury compensation program.
0: And this has been a longstanding issue, but it's just, it's so tricky. It's so tricky to deal with because. I do think part of this, you know, from talking to a few folks about it, is people are reluctant to talk about vaccine injuries because no one wants to look like an (laughs)
1: anti-vaxxer. On the show today, why already overburdened and backlogged vaccine injury compensation programs are getting more complicated right when people need them the most.
0: That's a huge thing that's out there is this this myth that vaccines kill or hurt more people than they help, mm-hmm. you know, and there have been lots of untruths and, and pieces of misinformation that have floated around out there that predate COVID, but have been amplified and exacerbated by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. But injuries do happen. And we have seen specific adverse events that have been associated with COVID vaccination, like uh, this rare blood clotting issue after certain people have gotten the Johnson & Johnson shot, myocarditis and pericarditis after the Moderna or Pfizer shots. You know, these things do exist, and it's important to acknowledge that and have a way to compensate people for that. But it's been tricky for lawmakers and policymakers to kind of walk that line between acknowledging it and trying to to deal with it and not wanting to (laughs) come off as, you know, that person who's talking about vaccine
1: injuries and, you know, inadvertently scaring people. So Congress created the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in 1986. Like, tell me about it. What, is it. what does that program do?
0: So this program came to be because there had been a raft of lawsuits filed by people claiming that they or their children were injured by vaccines. And there was a really intense concern that this would chill not only manufacturing of vaccines, but also just general uptake of them. And so Congress came together and decided, you know what, let's create an alternative to the legal system, the tort system as we know it, and create a no fault alternative where people can submit claims. They're vetted by a federal court. And if the court finds that there was more likely than not some kind of injury sustained from the vaccine, you can get compensated for your pain and suffering. So this program has been in existence for nearly 36 years. But it hasn't been updated at all. And when I say it hasn't been updated, I mean, like, structurally, you know, mm. there have been no changes. There's the same number of—they're called special masters who, mm-hmm. who consider these cases. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is the number of vaccines that are covered by the program. Because initially mm. it started out with six common childhood in- immunizations, and now we're up to 16. So the sheer number of shots that are potentially, you know, if you get the shot and something happens to you where you might be eligible to get a payout— It's nearly tripled.
1: And so what were some of the vaccines originally covered and what are some of the ones that it's grown to?
0: Originally, you know, things like measles, polio, and it's grown to include HPV is on the list now that's, you know, become a vaccine recommended within the last, you know, 20, 25 years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And influenza, that was actually kind of the big addition to the what they call the vaccine injury table, because as you know, flu shots are recommended not just for kids, but for adults, too. So it just opened up a whole new level of the potential for there to be claims just because the sheer number of people being covered now was so much larger. Mm -hmm. There's been a a pretty steady uptick in the number of claims that are filed each year. And the vast majority of
1: those are people who claim to have been injured by flu shots. And what are examples of these negative side effects or these injuries? What are kind of the range of reactions?
0: A lot of them are administration problems. So shoulder injuries from people Mm. who, you know, maybe the person who administered the vaccine to you didn't quite get it right, whether like not quite in the right muscle or, you know, something like that. So Mm. it can be things as innocuous as that. I don't say innocuous to downplay it, but it's a shoulder injury. It's not someone alleging that they nearly died from a vaccine. But these injuries can really affect a person's quality of life and might
1: affect what you're able to do day in and day out for a period of time. And what is the compensation that the program provides look like?
0: Right now, there's a cap on how much compensation you can get for injuries or deaths, and it's 250,000. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you would get that much if you submitted mm-hmm. a claim. Um, I, I ha- will hazard a guess that most are not quite that high. And there's actually legislation in Congress that you know while it would also address some other structural issues with the program updated a bit, one of the things that it would do would be to increase that cap to 600,000 and also allow it to be adjusted for inflation. Um so you know if you think about it I I can't do inflationary figures off the top of my head but $250,000 back in you know the mid 80s that looks a lot different nowadays for sure
1: so it seems like the current problem then you were saying is basically that there was already a backlog of people who needed compensation or who filed for compensation weren't getting it And now kind of on top of that, there are people who have had negative COVID vaccine reactions and that backlog has just grown.
0: First, I should make clear that when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines and other COVID treatments, devices that have been used um, to treat people with COVID-19, that's covered under a different program. So Mm -hmm. during the 2009-2010 H1N1 pandemic, the government created a different program that is focused specifically on pandemic what they call countermeasures. So Mm. that can mean a vaccine, a drug, a device, something like that that was developed specifically to address a public health emergency that's been declared. So it's slightly different in that, you know, there's an acknowledgement in this program that it's a pandemic. We're figuring things out as we go. So we're going to develop things and hope they, they work well, but there's a level of risk involved in that. So we'll have a separate program to potentially entertain claims from people who say they were injured by them. Now, that program before 2020 had gotten a total of about 500 claims. Most of them uh, were from the H1N1 vaccine. Mm. It They're now up to about 8,500. 8,500, make that clear. Um, and 5,000 of those have been for COVID-19 vaccines. So if you just look at the sheer number there of you know how many people are claiming that they've been injured by vaccines and this isn't taking into account, you know, how many of these are, you know, actually valid claims but just looking at that sheer number and thinking okay people are talking about ending the public health emergency declaration and that has, you know, follow-on effects that eventually will trickle down to FDA and to the vaccines that have been authorized under emergency use what happens when that ends And, you know, looking even further ahead, it seems pretty likely that CDC will routinely recommend COVID vaccines for use for everyone Mm -hmm. for, you know, in perpetuity. (laughs) Um, COVID's here to stay. No one's expecting it to be eradicated. This is probably something that is going to be recommended that people get vaccinated against every year or so. No one knows the exact timeline yet, but it's going to be like the flu recommendation most likely. Mm-hmm. So if you add another vaccine like the flu that people get every so often, likely every year, and you know, just looking at the sheer number of claims that people have filed for the flu shot, and COVID is kind of similar in that it covers a, a vast majority of the population, can the existing standard vaccine injury program handle the weight of that if you open it up to even more doses that are covered
1: by that program? And the answer is no. It doesn't look good. <laughs> <laughs> so what fixes the backlog? Is is some of that issue that you were talking about, like why Congress hasn't acted on this?
0: There's still an open question about, you know, what exactly would this cost? But the fund itself is funded by industry because it's an excise tax on each dose of vaccine that's administered. And mm. industry supports this. You know, they want a, the no-fault system to continue. It behooves them to keep it going. So there's just a lot of unknowns out there about why exactly this isn't moving. But, you know, there are a couple of healthcare related pieces of legislation that are moving this Congress where it would seem that this could be sort of a logical amendment. Um, you know, there's a pandemic preparedness legislation mm-hmm. that the Senate may consider later this session. There's also a package of bills to reauthorize FDA user fees. Mm -hmm. And that's considered must pass and needs to move by the end of the fiscal year. And of course, there's always, you know, annual spending packages. This type of thing could uh, hitch a ride on something like that.
1: So it seems like this program has been messed up for years in the sense that it has been underfunded and there hasn't been enough people to address this backlog. So why did this catch your eye now? Like, why is it important or relevant, especially now?
0: That's a great question. So I I actually first uh, was made aware of it by talking to someone who developed myocarditis after receiving his second, I believe, Pfizer vaccine for COVID. And, you know, he was telling me about how he was waiting to file a claim with the pandemic-specific program because he wanted to see if this legislation would move that would potentially move up the timeline for a COVID vaccine to be shifted under the vaccine injury compensation fund, the the standard one that's been around since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of had it in filed away in the back of my mind for a little while and then realized like, oh, you know, I I did a little digging and saw that, you know, this bill, you know, wasn't going anywhere, but that it had gotten some attention in a hearing last summer. And, you know, over the course of some reporting I've done about folks who have developed some of these conditions after COVID vaccination, realized, you know, this is potentially going to be a huge issue. And, you know, started talking to more people about it, patient advocates, lawyers who focus specifically on vaccine injuries and the industry itself and realized, oh, wow, there's, you know, broad consensus here that there's an issue and it should be fixed. And th- they've all kind of coalesced more or less around, you know, a legislative approach to that but this isn't going anywhere. (laughs) And just looking at the number of claims that have been filed specific to the COVID shots for the pandemic program, you know, Mm -hmm. all you have to do is look at that side by side with the other vaccine program. And you see that, you know, there's a cliff coming here. Uh, Why isn't anyone, you know, sounding
1: the alarm on this? So what are you watching out for then in the coming days and weeks on this?
0: Um, I'll be watching to see if this gets any more attention from lawmakers on the Hill as uh, some of those pieces of legislation that I mentioned move forward. In particular, there's a bill coming in the Senate. Uh, It hasn't been introduced yet, but I think that could potentially be um, an interesting marker, depending on how similar it is to the House bill that is already out there. Another piece of this, you know, I, I mentioned that the vaccines that are covered under the longstanding program from the 80s. That fund's funded by an excise tax. Anytime you have a tax title to any piece Mm -hmm. of legislation, that just seems to complicate it even more. So that's, you know, another aspect that I'm looking out for, you know, if this is the type of thing that could hitch a ride on something that already has a spending title as it's moving forward in Congress. Mostly all eyes on the hill to see if they're going to actually do anything to address this problem before we're actually in it.
1: All right, that's our show for this week. I'm Annie Reese, and a huge thank you to Lauren Gardner from our healthcare team for joining me. Ulcek's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan, and our executive producer is Jenny Ament. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again next week.